0: The San Francisco Experience Podcast, brought to you by Jim Hurley, independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 5. Oppenheimer. In conversation with Sean Chang of the Hill Place Movie and TV blog. Hello, Sean. And welcome back to the
1: show. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me back.
0: Sean, Oppenheimer was released on July 21st, almost two weeks ago. And it's doing very well at the box office globally. Are you surprised?
1: No. I, I Christopher Nolan is a filmmaker with a huge following. So I sensed that it probably was going to do well. But I would not have predicted that it was going to do it well to the extent that it has. For it to be, you know, this, you know, movie that that seems each week to, you know, gain more and more box office appeal. I think um, the fact that it was released and people have, you know, termed this Barbenheimer, you know, it was released the same weekend as Barbie. The two phenomenons kind of fed into each other, and it's it's been written about and talked about. So I'm not going to bore people with with the concept of the fact that two major movies that were so completely disparate from each other were released on the same day. But it really just generated a lot of interest, and it got people thinking. Let's go see both the same weekend. You know, they, uh-huh. they're both completely different. You know, one will balance the other, and it's, it's a box office phenomenon that the studios are already looking at to try to see if they can recreate it. But I think this is just one of those perfect storms that came together, where it, you know the two movies, like I said, you know, that were just so disparate, but yet people in, in the public were, was fascinated and excited by it that they just fed into each other. So I think I'm not surprised it's been successful. I am surprised that it's been this successful.
0: Well, it, again, the reason that I ask if you were surprised, number one, it's three hours. Number two, it's, <laughs> it's very heavy on dialogue, very heavy on yeah. dialogue. Number three, it's it's everything that modern Hollywood is not. It's all about the patriarchy. There is very little to no diversity in the film. Women play a very tiny role in the film. I mean, mm-hmm. so many of those hot-button issues that Hollywood has been, been shouting about for the last few years, it's as though Nolan had basically said, I'm doing this and that's how I'm
1: doing it, period. Perhaps, but, you know, there's been people criticizing it for those very reasons, which, you know, to me are just completely laughable. I mean, I remember um, the first weekend alone, there was one woman on Twitter who was said that she was counting the number of lines that women had in yes. the movie, which which demonstrated that she had an agenda that had nothing to do with the subject matter of the movie. And then there were people who were not happy about the fact that this is a story that basically relates to what happened in um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and there were no Japanese characters dramatized, so they were upset for that reason. But the way I look at it is is that it's about the patriarchy but the people who are upset over the fact that it, you know it dramatizes the patriarchy are n- neglecting the fact that Nolan isn't necessarily showing that the patriarchy is a positive thing. I think hmm. Nolan's movie demonstrates the fact that the white men in the movie, you know, who were responsible for the bomb, they unleashed a Pandora's box on the world that basically probably have negative effects, you know, for generations to come. So I think the people who you know, are negative about the movie on that respect um don't even realize that what he's saying is not necessarily a positive commentary on it i I think he just basically had a subject matter that he was interested in and he you know he dramatized it in a way that was probably as authentic as possible as possibly can be although if you look at it closely jim in the background in the streets of berkeley you know there are scenes where in the background there were african-american extras in the background I don't know what the demographic makeup of Berkeley was at the time, but I remember noting that and saying that that's probably what checked off the box so that the film at least would at least be seen in terms of making certain quotas.
0: I guess you're right. And, you know, another reason I think that this film has resonated with the public is the issue of existentialism you know the mm-hmm. existential threat that came about as a result of nuclear weapons and we're still living with that existential threat more than seventy five years after the mm-hmm. the first bomb was uh, was detonated and of course mm-hmm. we now currently have the discussion of eg- existential threat coming from another unproven and untried technology, namely artificial intelligence. So mm-hmm. I, I felt that that you know the discussion and the fears about artificial intelligence getting out of control and perhaps posing a risk to uh, to humanity to the future of humanity was a theme that that essentially you could relate to in this movie also, Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's an interesting one. I hadn't thought of it specifically in terms of that, but I I think that's a really good analogy, actually. What I liked about it was this, and you cited the fact a moment ago that it's a three-hour movie and it's mostly people talking, but it's the way the story is presented. It's the way people are talking. It's the way the movie dramatizes these scenes and these characters. I mean, it's three hours of people talking and it's dramatically exciting and riveting. There's no other way to describe it, Jim. Mm -hmm. It's three hours of people planning you know planning in terms of creating this new technology and it's not necessarily like there's action or whatever it's just just basically human drama unfolding in front of you i I tried to explain to people who hadn't seen it yet how exciting it was and they were really impressed and they went and saw it and then and, and then they basically came back and said oh yeah you're right so i don't know what it was that nolan did that basically was able to you know, see the film from the perspective that really engage people the way it has, but my hat's off to him. I mean, he, he made a movie that basically is the kind of grown-up movie that the studios used mm-hmm. to give us every year towards the end of the year to try to qualify for Oscars and to get Oscar nominations and Oscar awards. He's done something that basically is a throwback to that kind of filmmaking that we haven't seen in a long, long time on a grand scale, and I think that's the reason why the public has responded to it the way they have. It's an intelligent movie, it's an entertainment Movie. It's a thoughtful movie. It's the kind of classic Hollywood film that uh, that we're hungry for.
0: Absolutely. And you know, as we discussed before we came on the air, I was so impressed with it. And as I was preparing for this podcast today this morning, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to go back and watch it a second time this weekend. There were so many scenes in that film that at the time I just perhaps washed over me that, Mm -hmm. you know, that there were there were nuances and there were there were details, I think, that I may have missed just trying to keep up with the total dialogue. So I'm Mm going to go back and watch it a second time this coming weekend to pick up on some of those subtleties.
1: I, I want to see it, too, on the big screen before When I say before it's over. I mean, it's going to be out for a while because clearly it's doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it in a theater that was just regular IMAX visually and you know, both visually and the, the way the sound was mixed and the, the, the music score. It was just a feast for the senses from my point of view. I think you saw it in regular projection and you felt it was still a feast for the senses, even even a, in a much smaller um, projection. Uh, would that be correct?
0: That's right. And in fact, the theater where I saw it only had about uh, maybe 10 rows in it. It was a relatively small theater. So as a result, I had the impression of being overwhelmed by the—being <laughs> so close to the screen and being overwhelmed just by the uh, the closeness to the screen, the, uh, the the fact that all of the shots are close-ups. As, as people are talking, they're all close-ups. And certainly the, uh, the score, the music score, the sound score is uh, second to none. Very, uh, very impressive.
1: Well, also, the other thing I want to say is the structure of the screenplay is also what's unique. Usually when there's a biopic, it's usually pretty much a straight chronological narrative line. This goes back and forth in time. It jumps forward in time. It it jumps back in time. I mean, it's based on a book called American Prometheus. And sometimes as I'm watching the movie, it felt like you're like a it felt like you were reading a very thick book on the subject, and sometimes you would basically flip back a few pages you know, to kind of remind yourself of certain details mm-hmm. and then flip back to where you were in terms of how the story presented itself. I don't know if that makes any sense what I'm trying to describe to you, but I think it's that sort of... Very frisky, very energetic way of presenting um, for subject, the subject matter is what has engaged the audience. But one of the things that I'm sure you're intrigued by, Jim, is the fact that so much of it is set, you know, in Northern California around Berkeley. Was there anything in particular that stood out for you in that regard?
0: Well, I mean, there were so many things that stood out. Of course, uh, Oppenheimer himself was a professor at UC Berkeley, feature, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the one of the main protagonists in the film is played by Josh Hartnett, who plays Ernest Lawrence, who Mm -hmm. who was a colleague of Oppenheimer at UC Berkeley. And of course, the Mm -hmm. Lawrence Livermore National Labs, which is the premier nuclear research center for the United States, is there at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. It's named in honor of Ernest Lawrence. Um, Just moving on, Oppenheimer's brother, younger brother, Frank, was, mm-hmm. who of course was a communist. I mean, that was, mm-hmm. uh, there was some question about, and I know we'll get on to talk about blacklisting and communist, et cetera. Frank was a member of the Communist Party. There was no question about it. Mm-hmm. Some said that uh, his brother Oppenheimer, the subject of this film, had communist sympathies, but he, he was never apparently a member of the Communist Party. But Frank, his younger brother, was. And he was also, mm-hmm. he's a PhD from Johns Hopkins. He did teach at Berkeley for a time, but then he was blacklisted from 1949 to 1959. He couldn't get a job in at university level, and so he taught high school in Colorado but then came but and then got a uh, professorship at University of Colorado but eventually came back here to the Bay Area in 1969 he set up mm-hmm. the Exploratorium the science museum which of course is the 300,000 square foot science museum on the Embarcadero here in San Francisco, he founded that museum in 1969, always dedicated to science education. And he headed up the Exploratorium until 1985. And in mm-hmm. fact, the Exploratorium's website is one of the top website visited websites on the internet. So there was that Edward Teller. Who we? I, I want to talk about him because yeah. I actually met him about 30 years ago. He was called the father of the H bomb, the hydrogen bomb, and mm-hmm. I remember attending a lecture here in San Francisco. Spoke with him afterwards, and even though he was in his, he was well over, well into his 80s at that point, mm-hmm. still yeah. as sharp as a tack but there was something about his demeanor where he was still trying to prove something, and I I couldn't put my finger on it, but the way that Teller is presented and depicted in this film, I th- helped me understand what I observed of Teller myself when I met him uh, mm-hmm. the, some 30 years ago, that he was burdened by the, the fact that he'd been ostracized by the scientific community for essentially testifying against Oppenheimer. Um, mm-hmm. So that was another uh, Bay Area connection. And then, of course, his lover, Oppenheimer's lover, Tatlock. Committed uh, suicide here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. She went to Stanford Medical School. She was a uh, she was a psychiatrist, trained as a mm-hmm. doctor. And and that was you know a conspiracy theorist have it that uh, well she didn't really commit suicide. Maybe she was maybe she was bumped off by Secret Service or what have you. So a lot of Bay Area San Francisco connections in this film.
1: Well, you know, weeks and months ago when I first pointed this movie out to you and I said that I couldn't wait to see it and I t- said, oh, Jim, you should too. Was I right that this was your cup of tea, you I... know, in, ter- in terms of t- t- touching on things that you'd like?
0: Oh, absolutely. It uh, You you hit the nail on the head and uh, whenever you recommend a film in the future, Sean, I will be there.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh-oh, uh-oh. I, I don't think I can live with that responsibility. <laughs> Since you brought up the whole blacklist, I mean, the... the Everyone thinks on the outset, seeing the ads, that the movie is primarily about the development uh, of the atomic bomb, and certainly that that is a major, you know, narrative thrust of the movie. But it also touches upon later in the fifties when he lost his security clearance due to his—I mean, he wasn't a communist, but he did associate with people who were communists, and it affected his life. And I I found that dramatically interesting and i I need to explain to the listener uh, my father escaped from communist china in Mm -hmm. 1949 so i because he escaped from communist china in 1949 i'm very aware of what happened to um, to his family members in china and also he was a young child he you know was in china during world war ii during the japanese occupation that Mm -hmm. has really shaped the way i see the world in a lot of ways it may not be something that a lot of your listeners uh you know like but that's just my point of view Mm -hmm. so in that sense I think what Oppenheimer did in terms of developing the bomb and the United States government's decision to drop the bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki because of what my father witnessed. My father always felt that the United States government was justified in doing so, and I uh, leaned and I basically agree with him. I lean towards that. I realize there's people who are going to disagree with what I just said, but you know that's that I'm coming to it from a perspective. Um, that i think is you know informed by what my father's experiences secondly in terms of the whole blacklist aspect of the storyline what i found fascinating is is that the, as a result of my father's experience with communism i have never felt that it was a mild harmless ideology i've seen it for the uh, for as pernicious effect it's had on the world mm-hmm. so in that sense it's like my view of the blacklist is a little bit complicated on the one hand I think this is this is a country the United States that should allow people to have the right to believe in whatever philosophies that they want to believe in, but I kind of, but I feel that communism, as communism was at that time, if it was put into actual practice in the United States, would have taken away people's rights to believe in what they want to believe in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I, so I'm kind of a little bit, I, I feel a little bit, have mixed feelings about the whole blacklist issue because on the one hand, I don't think people should have been blacklisted, but on the other, on the other hand, if people were truly communists, I kind of feel it's a little hypocritical because you know they were advocating. For something that would have taken away people's rights to believe in what they want to believe in, I don't know if I'm making sense. What I'm saying?
0: Oh, you are. You're, you're absolutely making sense. And you know, for those again, I recall the late 1950s, and of course, there was still very definitely a very strong anti-communist sense in uh, in the United States and and uh, in schools. In schools. I remember, I remember high school teachers being drummed out of teaching high school because they had been members of the Communist Party and that kind of thing. And don't forget, we've reached fever pitch of blacklisting in the early 1950s with the Rosenberg trial where Mr. Mm-hmm. and Mrs. where uh, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were tried convicted and executed for they were both they both had uh, communist uh, affiliations they were executed for having passed atomic secrets to the russians and they left behind two young sons so that was if ever there were a an example of what an affiliation with the communist party could lead to the execution of a young man and woman leaving behind two children sanctioned by the US government was something that was very very clear in people's minds throughout the 1950s. Now of course that's not that's not reflected in this movie. They don't talk about the Rosenbergs and that's the subject for Yeah, for that because
1: that's a, that, exactly. That's a whole different thing and I and and I think it, the distinction is made in regards to, you know, Oppenheimer. He did not take this, the the actions that the Rosenbergs did. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's an apples and oranges situation. But because of the fact that he was associated with so many people, and I think the movie is not subtle about the fact that some of these people appeared to, you know, who were communist members members of the Communist Party in the United States, appeared to have had direct ties to the Russian government. I mean, it does. Even though I think it's sympathetic to Oppenheimer, it does basically present the case that him losing his security clearance was. Not entirely without reason.
0: Let's come back to Killian Murphy's portrayal of sure. Oppenheimer. Of course, we we know Killian Murphy from many performances. Of course, uh, most recently, for those who've watched uh, *Peaky Blinders*. Uh, mm-hmm. He was, uh, he starred in that. You were telling me that his preparation for this role involved him virtually on a starvation diet to, to reach the skeletal thin levels of Robert Oppenheimer's weight. Mm-hmm. But, you know, very interestingly, he had the benefit of being able to watch so many recorded TV interviews with mm-hmm. Oppenheimer which any of us can watch on YouTube they're they're all grainy black and white film interviews today he had an unusual way of speaking he had a, an accent which doesn't exist anymore he had that sort of a refined new york northeast college educated sophisticated Accent, which comes across in the YouTube clips if you want to hear it directly from the man's mouth. And yeah. for Killian Murphy to have mimicked that and to have conquered that, I thought was a terrific effort on his part. He also car- brings across the angst that Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, felt, obviously, in creating uh, this—he was the father of the atomic bomb, as he's known. He was the head of the Manhattan Project. But he uh, was—he brought that angst across this— a sense of, um, on the one hand he had, he was the father of the atomic bomb, they didn't call it the bomb, they called it the gadget when they were out there in uh, Los Alamos, but by the same token he had his doubts, he felt real guilt, and to a point where at one point in the film Oppenheimer is ushered into the Oval Office to meet with President Harry Truman who's played by, I think it's Gary Oldman
1: Brilliant performance by Gary Oldman oh, by just, it's just, yeah. And
0: he's made up to look like Harry Truman as well, I mean it's, it's just amazing, and he's got that crusty that crusty man of the people persona of truman and and of course here you have this very angst ridden thoughtful oppenheimer talking to a very down to earth harry truman and he's expressing his his angst and his guilt and his uncertainty and what have you and having created this bomb and afterwards truman talks to his uh, his secretary of state and said, calls, uh, referred to Oppenheimer as a crybaby scientist. And in fact, mm. at one point, Truman actually takes the pocket handkerchief out of his pocket, I guess thinking that Oppenheimer was about to cry or maybe he was being sarcastic and passes it to Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer declines it. Again, th- that's another example of some of those nuanced scenes in that film that I want to go back and see a second time. But l- let's talk about the the angst of Robert Oppenheimer because he was a he was a very a very tortured man.
1: Yeah, and I, I read something about his grandson said that he didn't like the scenes earlier in the film where it shows him trying to uh, poison one of his instructor's apples. Yes, you know that he felt that that kind of went a little bit too far. Since I haven't read the book American Prometheus, I'm not sure what the basis of that was. You no, know, he's a complicated guy. He's not necessarily a warm character as per- portrayed in the movie. I've seen some people complain about Murphy's performance, saying that it could have been warmer. I, I don't. I don't agree with that. I, I think based on what you what you've described in terms of what we know about him historically and what we've seen about him in newsreels, it looks like Murphy basically tried to do what the best he could to try to dramatize as close as possible. Possible the, man, the way the man was. This is not a warm, cuddly figure, and he doesn't attempt to try to you know portray him as such. I mean, you do feel for him when he loses his security clearance. And what I was trying to say earlier about it is, is that because of the because of his um, you know ties to people who were communists, I, I can see how people would view him as, as a threat. Um, and why his security clearance you know would have been revoked but at the same time because we know the character of the man in terms of the fact that he was dedicated to his country wanted to do what he could to develop this bomb to end the war and to ensure that the that the Nazis you know did not win the war it is also a tragedy at the same time you know that he does you know get his security clearance revoked because he does dem- he's one person who did demonstrate his loyalty to the country but you know, at the same time you know if you're involved with things of a sensitive nature you know everything comes under scrutiny you know that's but- kind of what I was trying to
0: say, but you know the that incident at Oxford. There was an incident where he did try. I don't know whether whether or not it was with an apple, and I'm going to come back to the apple in a minute. I don't know whether mm-hmm. he actually used the apple, but there was an incident at Oxford where he where he threatened one of his tutors, and in fact, his Oppenheimer's parents had to actually settle out of court to, with that tutor. The use of the apple as a theatrical device, of course, mm-hmm. you know, uh, from a science perspective, you think of Sir Isaac Newton. Improving of science. Of course, Sir Isaac Newton was at Cambridge, but the apple falling from the tree and, you know, that being a sort of physical manifestation of, uh, of gravity and the laws of gravity and how important that was to science. Mm. And going back further in history, the apple in the Garden of Eden and the temptation of the apple and how it led to the destruction of Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden and uh, humanity has never been the same since. And then most recently in the 1950s, Alan Turing, arguably the father of, uh, computer science, who, in mm-hmm. fact, ate a poisoned apple. So the, the use of that apple as a dramatic device, whether, whether that, in fact, is what, what Oppenheimer did, and I'm going to have to go back and research that, but, but again, the importance of the apple as a dramatic prop in history both real and imagined I-, I thought was was another another brilliant play by uh, Chris Nolan
1: I, in fact the way you you encapsulated that a second ago I, I I'm a bit envious actually I mean that's pretty that, that's, that's that's pretty great actually one of the things that you mentioned earlier in terms of the size of the role for the women in the movie yes I mean they're not the leads but I would have to say uh, Emily Blent uh, playing his wife in the picture yes. is uh, quite remarkable especially in the scene when she's being interrogated about her communist ties in the past and the Way she pushes back, but but also that scene at the end, the end of the film, when she is her husband's being honored, by, I think uh, by LBJ, yes, in the Oval Office, people are coming up and shaking his hand, and then Teller, you know, shakes her husband's hand, but the way she rejects his gesture, his his peace offering, I thought that was a very nuanced moment. What did you think about that scene? Oh,
0: absolutely, and apparently Teller never recovered from that. And at the time he stepped when he wept out of the Oval Office, he wept bitter tears. Mm-hmm. He wept yeah. bitter tears at the rejection that he he felt from Kitty Oppenheimer. It's beautifully portrayed in that uh, in that scene. And of course, in that scene where uh, where Oppenheimer's uh, fighting for his security clearance and there's this uh, this hearing to take it away from him, they also reference his affair with Jean Tatlock right there mm-hmm. in front of his wife Kitty Oppenheimer. That was that was a tough scene.
1: Very well, t- uh, well, when they suddenly basically had both actors nude, basically, yes. you know, acting out the the, uh, the sexual act, and I mean, I had a friend who actually said to me that that he loved the movie but didn't care for that dramatic device of dramatizing the sex scene in the middle of the interrogation. It took him out, took him out of the scene for a moment. And I, I see that I, I, I like, I, I like filmmakers who kind of like push the, uh, push the envelope a little bit. So even though I agree with my friend in terms of taking you out of the, out of the moment, I kind of liked it at the same time. Well, so, you, I, you know, you go know ahead. sorry, I,
0: I saw it as a portrayal of what Kitty was feeling Who she loved this man this this is her husband you know she's listening to this the sordid details of his uh, his affair with Jean Tatlock and Mm -hmm. so from her I I took it from her perspective that that's how she was viewing that was a very personal view on her part of them that the fact that they were making love there in the Uh, In the hearing room and they're both naked. That was her perspective. And I could understand how how somebody could how a, a spouse, a jilted spouse, a jilted lover could have that kind of obsession.
1: Well, it, it's basically being rubbed in her face yes. at that moment, you know, and Nolan is, is actually visually dramatizing it for us so that it's getting the point across without having dialogue, say, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, which a typical, you know, conventional filmmaker would have would had would have had lines in it saying, you humiliated me, blah, 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 you know, <laughs> so so no, I thought it was I thought it was it, it was um it was brilliant. You know, what was it really interesting is the fact that we hear about the bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but the film does not dramatize mm-hmm. that moment for us. It keeps it off screen. I thought that was a really interesting point because it really does keep the film the film focused on, the, on on Oppenheimer and the other scientists and the work that they did. There was a 1947 film called The Beginning or the End from MGM directed by Norman Torog. And it, it, it covers the story of the Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer is a character in it, but he's not the lead character. And um, I've seen people, Jim, write about that film in recent weeks in a der- negative manner, calling it a disastrous movie and this and that. And there was a book written about the making of the movie written by a guy who I think despises the film because the film tries to show the development of the atomic bomb from a positive point of view. I actually, Jim, like the beginning or the end, personally. I personally like the movie. I, I like the actors in it. I, I think the movie is entertaining. I Is it corny at certain moments? Sure. Um, is the perspective of it unquestioningly positive sure but this is in 1947 MGM two years after the war of course they're going to give it that point of view I think it's a fascinating film in terms of it being a time capsule in terms of what American uh, society at the time viewed the atomic bomb so I think if you're listening to this and you're curious about the beginning or the end you can google it and I think you can find it streaming online somewhere on YouTube in a couple of places and I think they're both interesting companion pieces they're parallel movies they're not the same storylines but I think if you're interested in the subject that film is interesting to look up as as a different perspective on the same subject
0: what was the basis of the the beef if you will between oppenheimer and strauss
1: I'm not sure about it historically I mean what what do you think and i don't want to I don't want to talk about it like if I'm a historian on that point of view what 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 was your take on it
0: well i mean they're they're locked in this Strauss seems to have this whether it's a jealousy or whatever it is that Oppenheimer has now achieved this great renown and success by the way he, Oppenheimer, while he's known Informally, as the father of the atomic bomb, he never got the Nobel Prize for, uh, for the atomic bomb. Of course, the Nobel Prize doesn't award prizes for... Discoveries that are used for military purposes. So, but he was there. There seemed to be a great jealousy on his part, and Robert Downey Jr. I thought played that role again. Another, another tremendous dramatic performance by by a member of the cast.
1: I, I concur, and in fact, I found his scene so riveting. I mean, every time they went back to him in the story, you know, I, I I was completely enraptured. If he doesn't get nominated for the Oscar, much less win it next year, I mean, I've already said before the Academy is a screwed up. Organization I and mean, it's this movie. If this movie does not get nominated in multiple categories and win multiple Oscars next year because it's not or it, because it's a story of a of a white man, that's usually what seems to kind of invalidate movies in terms of the Academy Awards these days. Then it, it'll it, It'll just prove that the Oscars and the people and most of the voters are as screwed up as they are. That's sure, all I've got to say. Sure, you're not mm-hmm. suggesting
0: that there should be a trigger warning on Oppenheimer for for the fact that it's all white male.
1: Um, Oh, I I, I think by now people should know about it. So there shouldn't be, there there is no trigger warning and stuff. I think... what I just want to say is that the last few weeks, I've gone back to the movies in, in a major way. Like, I went I went and saw Oppenheimer the same day as Barbie. It was a little bit kind of an overwhelming experience, but I really actually enjoy just immersing myself in the movie going experience. The reason why I love Oppenheimer as much as I do is that it's contributed towards making people feel more at ease about going to the movies again yes. rather than watching things at home on streaming. Um, after several years of COVID, I think people became complacent about staying at home and, you know, relying on their Netflix or or you know, whatever streamers that they that they or Hulu or whatever. And this basically reminded people about um how important it is to have that shared movie going experience. So, so yeah, no, I, I think, I think it's an important movie both on a historical level um, thematic level, but also, you know, in terms of you know, a cultural level, in terms of uniting us all again, in terms of seeing movies. You know, it's
0: interesting. I saw the movie at a small theater here in Sebastopol, California. It was not an IMAX theater, but the theater only had about 10 rows of seats. So yes, from, from yes. you were kind of overwhelmed visually with the gigantic, screen at the end of the film and let let me preface this by saying Sebastopol uh, the nickname of Sebastopol is peace town you know so there's a very strong peace movement here green movement etc mm. Sebastopol is a nuclear free zone there was applause at the end of the film the audience applauded the film and uh, first of all i i wasn't surprised just given what a what a terrific film it was but in this little town of Sebastopol I was Mm -hmm. surprised that there would have been, just given its history of in the peace movement, I was surprised that there was such such an overwhelming applause at the end of the film.
1: Well, I'm not, because I think what the movie is trying to say is kind of complicated, and I think people are still going to be writing about it and trying to figure out what the ultimate theme of the picture is. I mean, my interpretation of it is that it's a story of a man, who felt he was justified to create the atomic bomb to try to end the war. But then he realized that the technology that he helped create could be taken, continued to be used for reasons beyond trying to bring peace, but make and may bring about further wars, and he became alarmed by it and wanted to stop that. I think if that's the ultimate theme, and the last line in the movie kind of, I think, reflects what I'm trying to say, Of course, that audience would applaud it. So I think that's why it could be seen from that point of view. But I think the reason why, even though, like I've said earlier in the podcast, I think America was justified in using the atomic bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I think can understand people's alarm with the rise of communism in America, or at least the threat of communism in America in the 50s, even though I do not believe in the blacklist nor agree with it in principle. I think the thing is, is that, you know, there are things in the movie that I might personally disagree with, But I applaud the film for having a point of view and sticking to it because in the last few years, I've realized that there's a point of view in film criticism that I really have an issue with. And the the issue is sometimes critics will watch a movie and hate a film because it doesn't reflect back at them the way they see the world or Mm -hmm. the way they want the world to be. There are aspects of Oppenheimer's storyline that maybe are perspectives that I might not fully agree with, but because aesthetically artistically and entertaining uh, from an entertainment point of view it's such a brilliant film i went with it i i just was so happy to see a film that was so well made that even if it had things in it i didn't agree with I still embrace the movie because this is what we want from filmmaking. We want mm-hmm. film, f- films to basically entertain us, to maybe be thought-provoking, and to maybe not necessarily answer all of our questions. To basically, you know, evoke a dialogue, a discussion. It, it's. I don't think of Oppenheimer as a message movie necessarily because I've seen people have different perspectives on it. A message movie is when everyone agrees on what the movie is about, and even the filmmaker, you know, in interviews, tells you what the movie is about and what you're supposed to take away from it. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't think Christopher Nolan has done that here. I think Nolan has given us hints and clues about ways of looking at the subject without completely spoon feeding it to us. And so I think that's what a real movie is about. And I think even though, like I said, there are aspects of it that I wasn't sure I fully agreed with. I've seen movies that I loved being trashed in recent years because critics interpreted it a certain way and were offended by it. and felt like it had no validity. You know, I want to be consistent in what I profess to believe in. And so, like I said, even though there are things about the film I didn't agree with, I still recognized it's an artistic achievement. And so I laud it for that.
0: Well, Sean, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about Oppenheimer? And are you going to go see it again this weekend?
1: I may go see it again this weekend. I'm, I'm going to try. I think I, think I pretty much have in given the listeners a, a, a strong perspective in terms of you know why I love the movie and like I like I've always said I have a particularly strong point of view about the world if people disagree with it I can respect it it's only one point of view that I've expressed everyone's entitled to their opinion and think this is just my opinion that you've heard and thanks for your patience for that for taking the time to listen to my point of view the only thing I want to leave you with is while Oppenheimer has done well Barbie has done well there's also another uh, there's another great film that was released this summer, which was Mission Impossible, the seventh Mission Impossible movie. It's a terrific movie. Um, it's kind of gotten lost in the you know in the shuffle because it was released one week before Oppenheimer and Barbie, but it's a great and well-made and thoughtful action picture the kind of action picture that we should get more of. Remember last summer, Tom Cruise gave us Top Gun Maverick, right. You know, and he brought us back into the movie theaters, and then he gave us, a year later, an equally well-made action film that just hasn't been doing as well financially, you know, because moviegoers are really enraptured by both Oppenheimer and Barbie. And I just want listeners to just uh, remind them that they should just go also see Mission Impossible as well because we want to support a well-made adventure movie like that. We don't want our action-adventure movies to be thrown together without any thoughts to character, script, or you know, a dialogue or nuance, you know, that movie, the Mission Impossible movie, you know, has it all. And I'd like, I'd like it to see it uh, to see it do better financially. That's all I got to say.
0: Well, Sean, once again, thanks for joining us and analyzing this this very timely landmark film. Looking forward to having you back next month, September. Can't believe next month is September already. When will be when you'll come back and and analyze uh, an, another film.
1: Uh, well, I'd be happy to come back.
0: Okay, wonderful. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 430. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, 18 platforms in total with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot recently named the San Francisco Experience among California's top 25 news podcasts. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.